2007, felt he'd had enough. Uh, and he decided to take God to court, decided that he would sue God. And he, uh, he had a long list of, of infractions that he was going to sue God for. He sued him for fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, pestilential plagues, and ferocious famines. Apparently, Ernie had a thing for God, and he had a thing for alliteration. He liked, he liked words that, uh, uh, that, that went together like that. He anticipated that there might be challenges to his uh, lawsuit, and it was actually brought, uh, uh, brought to court. He anticipated that some would claim that you can't sue someone that's not there. And so he had argued that God is omnipresent, and so he, of course, must be in the courtroom. Uh, but eventually the, court, the, the case was actually dismissed uh, on a technical grounds that he had not, you cannot serve summons to someone, and you need to serve someone's because God's home address is not listed. So that course was actually thrown out on that technicality, um, but an actual court case. Uh, someone trying to sue God for some of the difficult and unfortunate circumstances that he saw in his world. Ernie Chambers is the only guy I know who's actually done that, but I've talked to an awful lot of people who have done something very similar to that. When things go wrong, either around us in our world today or in our personal lives, it's very easy to uh, very informally and individually bring our charges against God, to take him to court in a sense in our mind and in our hearts, in our uh, feelings towards him. Uh, we charge God, God with negligence when things don't go our way. Why didn't I get that promotion? Why was I, uh, why was I cut from, from the team? Uh, why, did, uh, why did that diagnosis come? And where, where were you, God, when that happened? Uh, everybody has those kinds of feelings. Christians have some extra, there's some unique allegations that I find Christians bring against God. Uh, we ask questions like, where were you in that, in that election, God? Where, where are you in our politics? Uh, where are you, God, in our legal system? Um, where, where, where is God when so many churches are closing their doors? Doesn't he care? Where, where is he? What's he doing? And we bring those allegations against God, and we want our answers. I believe that God's word comes at those kinds of questions from a number, number of different angles. Uh, I believe that God's word this morning comes at those questions from an angle that many of us fail to consider. I want to show you from Scripture this morning that what God is doing sometimes when our world is falling apart, is that he is seeking to use the godly suffering of believers to convince a watching world of his glory and his goodness. That what he's, he's not, it's not like he's absent, it's not like he didn't notice or he doesn't care, but he is deliberately using the godly suffering of believers to speak to a watching world, to convince, him, convince them that his power is real, and that he is indeed the Lord that he claims himself to be. 
to show you that, I want to begin uh, in our passage today. We've been in a, a series from Philippians called Inextinguishable Joy, and we have been seeing the uh, remarkable uh, joy of someone who is suffering in prison, and we come today to Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me, and I'll read from verses 12 to 18. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of God. Now, in Scripture, God uses different things to try and get people's attention and to bring a message and convince people of it. Uh, sometimes, we, we, in the ministry of Jesus, you often see God uses miracles to try and convince people. Uh, sometimes, as in God's ministry through Moses to Pharaoh, God used plagues. And those plagues were intended to show the great power and glory of God, trying to get their attention. But sometimes he uses the suffering of believers to convince people. And when he does, the posture and attitude of believers uh, becomes significant in how and, and if God will and, uh, use that person for, for his glory. He's at those times looking for people who love God's glory more than their comfort, who are focused on him and what he is trying to do, what he is trying to say and communicate to this world rather than their own comfort and pleasure. And I want to explain what I mean. If you look at verse 12, Paul starts by saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what has happened to Paul is horrendous. Uh, he was uh, unjustly arrested, denied due process. He has been taken from jail to jail, brought before uh, a series of, of accusers, and now he is chained to a Roman guard. Those are the kind of circumstances that when they happen in our lives, they overwhelm us. They're the kind of circumstances that when they happen, we very often can't think of anything else. And we, we, lose, we lose sight of perspective, we lose sight of anything other than, God, you've got to get me out of this, and how did you let me get into this in the first place? But Paul sounds a little giddy when he says, all of this has advanced the gospel. It's amazing. You should see what's happening. And it sounds like he's almost grateful. It sounds like he's actually rejoicing as if something wonderful has happened. And you want to stop him for a moment and say, is this insanity speaking? Is is, is he lost his mind somehow? Because 
most of us would want to stop him and say, who cares that this is advancing the gospel? When are you getting out of prison? Who cares that, that, that God's word is going forward? This is unfair. This is unjust. When are you going to be released? How did God let this happen? And we ask those questions because at that moment, we, we like God, but we really love our comfort. And we can't imagine that God would take away comfort in order to accomplish something that he feels is more significant. When our comfort is stripped away, it, stripped away, it tests our love for God. It tests whether, whether God is just one of a number of loves or whether he is preeminent in our hearts. And often at those times, when the comfort is stripped away, we realize we don't really love God as much as we thought we did. In fact, we find at those times that maybe our love for comfort is greater than the, the love that we have for him. When bad things happen, I think our first instinct is, is to ask, why didn't God prevent it? We, we go there. Why, how did God let this happen? But we need to move from why didn't God let why did God let this happen to how is God using this? The why God to how God, how God are you using this? What's your purpose in this? What's your plan for this? Paul saw that God was using his suffering to advance the gospel and he rejoiced. He didn't just rejoice thinking power of positive thinking, I'm going to put on a smile today and it's going to be all better. It wasn't the power of stoicism that says, I'll just deny that this is a bad thing and somehow that'll make me feel more pleasant. No, he saw God's purpose in it. He saw how God was using it. And so he could genuinely rejoice in God's good purpose, even though it was uh, for, for him, extremely painful. Uh, Philip Yancey makes this comment. He says, we feel pain as an outrage. Jesus did too, which is why he performed miracles of healing. In Gethsemane, he didn't pray, thank you for this opportunity to suffer, but rather pled desperately for an escape. And yet, he was willing to undergo suffering in service of a higher goal. In the end, he left the hard questions like, if there be any other way, to the will of the Father and trusted that God could even use the outrage of his death for good. Jesus had his eyes on God's purpose, God's plan. And, and here's the significant part. He loved the Father's purpose and plan more than he loved his own comfort. Some of us can understand what God's doing and still not rejoice in what's, what God's doing because we love our comfort more than we love God's glory. And, and really, when, when it's all stripped away, those are the questions that are being asked of our faith. That's when we see what is truly in our heart and how our love for our Savior stacks up against that. In Paul's case, his his, he endured terrible suffering, but God's purposes in that suffering became very clear, very quickly. 
In verse 13, he explains that the reason for his giddiness about his imprisonment is, is this. He says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. If you could get past all of the suffering that he was enduring, the impact that he was making was incredibly profound. He mentions here the imperial guard. Uh, Paul was not only imprisoned, but he was personally chained to a member of uh, the imperial guard. And these were, these were not just regular soldiers. They weren't just security guards. Uh, you couldn't have regular soldiers in Rome. And so the only, peop- the only uh, people that were uh, allowed in Rome in, in serving in that kind of capacity were this imperial guard. They were hand-picked elite soldiers with incredible uh, background and training and credentials and they were, they were like the secret service. They were, they were 10,000 hand-picked bodyguards that served Caesar and did his, his pleasure. They would typically serve for a term of 12 years. After 12 years serving in the Imperial Guard, because they had amazing uh, background and training and credentials and loyalty, these these uh, people often went on to some of the most influential posts in the, in the Roman Empire. They went on to serve as generals. They went on to serve as senators, as uh, business leaders. These would become the future power brokers in the Roman Empire. And Paul says, I get to be chained in rotating shifts six hours at a time to a new guard every every shift. It's incredible. They can't get away. Six hours chained to Paul, and he was giving them the whole Damascus Road testimony. He's, he's sharing the gospel. He's talking about the miracles, the resurrection, and they would, they would be shaken by this. They would be moved by his testimony. At first, they would assume Paul had an angle, right? Everybody assumes that the religious guy's got an angle. But then they'd hear the story. Then they'd hear the testimony. And they would go away changed. At first, they thought he was after power or money or fame or pleasure. But it was when they saw Paul's joy in suffering, when they saw this man stripped of honor, stripped of his comforts, when all was stripped away from him, they saw that what he truly loved more than anything else, what was truly at the center of his heart and his faith was this resurrected Savior he kept talking about called Jesus the Christ. And it was as they saw that it wasn't any of those other things, as they saw that in in the midst of suffering, all of that stripped away, and it really is Christ that's the center, they saw God's glory, and it moved them. And they started to talk. There's no question, even though there was a good rotation, all 10,000 of the Roman, of the Imperial Guard were not personally chained to Paul. But six hours with this man and you couldn't help but tell someone else. That message couldn't help but spread. And it, it did spread. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.11. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, and listen to this, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Why are you being given over to death? Why did this happen to you? Now, there may be a number of reasons this happened to you, but one of the reasons, Paul says here, one of the reasons that you're given over to death, that that your comfort was stripped away, and you're looking at your circumstance, and you're thinking, this just doesn't make sense. Why would God do this to me? One of the reasons is that so that Jesus would be manifested in you, so that people could see the reality of faith in Jesus Christ and God's glory would be on display. You know, maybe you don't know because you haven't thought about it very much. When I say that, when I introduce myself to anyone in the community or a friend and, and I say that I'm a pastor, you know the first thing that comes to mind. They're, they assume my motivation for wanting to become a pastor, right? You want a job where you can only have to work one day a week. That's, that's the motivation. That's, that's the first thing that comes to people's mind. That must be the reason. I know that when most people hear that you say you're a Christian, a similar a similar thing takes place in their mind. They assume, oh, you must be a Christian because that's your family background. You must be a Christian because it's kind of like a social club and you've got some, some good friends there. You must be a Christian because that's just your tradition. I know you must be a Christian because you have a problem with guilt and you like to go to church to get more guilt. So those are the kinds of questions that go, the, the kinds of thoughts that go through people's mind as they kind of think, well, they kind of say that they're a Christian and I, I don't know what their motivation for that. It's probably one of these things. And you tell them about Jesus and you say, no, it's really, it's about the good news. It's about the, the forgiveness that we can enjoy through faith alone in a Savior. And they hear the words, but they say, yeah, I know. I, I know, but it's, it's really about your tradition. It's really about kind of a social, I don't know, it's really about your guilt. I don't know what it is. But. And then the tragedy hits. Then your comfort is stripped away. Then all of the natural reasons that you would have for going to church and being a Christian are, are tested. And at that moment, they, the person will either see Everything stripped away, and the glory of God, the, 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 the true heart of your faith would be Christ and him uh, on display for a watching world. Either they will see that, and, and it will be an inexplicable uh, testimony to God's glory. How could this person be rejoicing in circumstances like this? How could this person have contentment and peace in the midst of all, of, all that they're going through? They will either see that or they will see you and me clinging to comfort, screaming and kicking and complaining to God, like, why why are you taking away the most important thing in my life, God? What are you doing? Blaming God, taking him into court in our hearts. They will either see that or they will see God's glory on display. That's not what God is doing every single time we face suffering. That is often what God is doing 
when we, though when we find our lives falling apart. He is trying to convince a watching world of the reality of Jesus Christ. And at those times we are tested, do I really love God and his glory? Or do I really kind of just love my comfort with a little Jesus on the side somewhere? So God's on mission to convince a watching world and he uses people who love God's glory more than they love their own comfort. He also uses people who love his glory more than their freedom. Because often our freedoms are also stripped away. When we lose our freedom, it tests our love. Shows whether or not we love God's glory more than the freedoms that we cherish. In verse 13, Paul mentions his imprisonment. In verse 14, he talks about his imprisonment again. But the, lit- the word is literally chains. And that word chains gives us a picture of the kind of imprisonment Paul was, was experiencing. Being in chains meant that you were in some form of military custody. You were literally chained to a, uh, uh, one of these imperial guard members 24-7. So when Paul went to the washroom, he went to the washroom chained to a Roman guard. Uh, if, if Paul had a bath, he would go to the bath chained to a Roman guard. If Paul went to sleep, he went to sleep chained to a Roman guard. All of his freedom, all of his independence stripped away. Now, many of you have experienced something like this, not because you've been chained to a Roman guard, but because often it's through health. Health issues come and we find our freedoms stripped away. Uh, health, Health issues hit, we're not able to drive independently. We're not able to fly freely. Uh, we're not able to move around as independently as we could before. And we feel the loss of freedom. Paul felt the loss of freedom. And if we love our freedom more than we love God, we'll fight, we'll complain, we'll struggle, and we will inadvertently show the people around us that we love our freedom more than we love our Savior. The Bible says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The suffering will come. It comes in different forms. It comes in, uh, through, through different, uh, from different corners. But persecution and suffering aren't optional. They aren't... There, there's something... There's sometimes when we can minimize them through compromise and sin. We can kind of uh, skirt around them for a time, but... Ultimately, we recognize God uses them. They're part of his plan. C.S. Lewis famously said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes that megaphone of pain God uses it to awaken us to the condition of our own heart. But other times, God uses our suffering to awaken someone else to the condition of their own heart. As they see someone in godly suffering with a contentment and a peace and a joy that can't be easily explained by any of the normal means, it makes them consider whether I could have that 
that peace, whether I would have that joy in this circumstance. And it can awaken other people uh, to the condition of their heart. In verse 14, Paul spoke of the impact of his chains and what, what those chains, the impact they were having on the pe- believers around them. He says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, this was a period in Emperor Nero's rule where he was starting to reach his crazy peak. Uh, he's the guy who went on to... Uh, set Christians on fire in his garden. He, he had a maniacal rule, and he's just about to, to get to the peak of that. Naturally, the church came under suspicion. Naturally, the believers, particularly in Rome, because that's the center and it would then spread from there, the believers, particularly in Rome, where Paul is imprisoned, were kind of holding back a little bit. They were kind of flying under the radar a little bit. And then they see Paul. Then they see someone whose comfort's been stripped away. They see someone whose freedoms have been stripped away. And he can not only have joy, but he can have this bold impact that nobody would have ever ever dreamed. They see in Paul someone who... The Roman Empire has thrown the worst that they could at a, at a man, and he is having this profound impact uh, on, on, uh, on the most uh, uh, powerful and influential people that they could have reached. At the very point when Rome had, had, had come at him, he was inv- evangelizing the entire imperial guard. Some of the most influential people in the empire being impacted with the gospel. And when Paul will sign off this letter in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wow. In Caesar's household, people have come to Christ. In the imperial guard, people have received him and trusted in Christ as Savior. They see that impact, and it makes them bold. They see that impact that... It doesn't matter what happens to a believer if they put Christ first rather than their comforts and their freedoms, then God's glory can be on display. That God can do incredible things. And that gave them boldness. When Jim, El- Jim Elliott and the four other Wheaton College graduates known as the Aka Five were martyred and they were seeking to bring the gospel to an unreached Uh, tribe in the Amazon. All five of them lost their lives in that attempt. And you would think that it would clear out the missions department, right? You would think that people would see their deaths and say, "Um, all for Jesus, uh, sharing the gospel is a good idea, but I think we need to choose a safer route. I I I think we need to, to be careful what we say. I think we need to, to uh, be a little more cautious in our, in our approach. You would think that that would be the case. Instead, what happened is, starting in Wheaton College and in many other uh, colleges and seminaries across the country, people, fl- they were flooded with applications for world missions. For the next two decades, the deaths of, of those five men 
would have an impact on the hearts of believers, giving them new boldness and new courage, new strength to make Christ known. And that's the impact that, that uh, godly suffering always has. That's the impact that always takes place when people put God's glory before their own comforts, before their own freedoms, and people see the impact of that. They can see God's glory and it ignites in them something of a desire to, to live their life out, to live their faith out in a whole different way. I know this is true in my life. I'm sure it's true in your life. There are people whom you've prayed for. There are people whom you desperately want to see the reality of Jesus Christ. And it just seems that it's hard for them to listen. It just seems that it's hard for them to get the message. And then God brings some suffering. God brings some suffering. And it's suffering in your life. And you're thinking, well, this is going to turn them off. This is going, this is, this is turning me off. This is, this is making me ask questions. And yet, often it's that very suffering that God is seeking to use to impact their life, to, to, bring, to ignite faith in, in the people around us, or to bring out the, uh, the faith of believers around us who would be transformed by them. When suffering comes, when we lose our freedom, it's an opportunity to show that Jesus is more precious, that God's glory means more to us and to put him on display. Now, I said in Egypt, uh, when God tried to convince Pharaoh to let let the people go, he used plagues. And he didn't just use plagues, though. He used increasingly more severe plagues. And his goal, try and convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians of his power and of his salvation. In Rome, when God tried to convince the people there, when he tried to get Caesar's attention and tried to get the people's attention, he didn't bring plagues on them. He brought plagues on his servant, Paul. He brought plagues, in a sense, on the believers. And like in Egypt, it, just, it wasn't just a one-off plague. It was increasingly more, uh, more serious, more severe plagues that came upon them. After taking away Paul's comfort and his freedom, then he faced arguably the hardest of the plagues. He faced the personal attack. But through it, he would show that he loved God's glory more than not just his comfort, not just his freedom, more than his reputation. As he bore that personal attack and a series of personal attacks for God's glory. So far, Paul has explained all of the good things that have come from his imprisonment. Uh, The gospel is spreading. Believers are more bold. You might get the impression, hey, everything is going great. But that wouldn't be an accurate impression. That wouldn't be the entire story. In verse 15, he notes that the intensified Christian preaching wasn't all well-intentioned. It wasn't all people are just becoming more bold. Some of it was a little nasty. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. 
we need, to, we need to note these were fellow believers. These are a part of the group he calls brothers in verse 14. And we also need to note they're preaching the true gospel. These aren't, as is often the case, people who are rising up to preach a false gospel because in verse 18, he rejoices in their proclamation. He thinks, hey, they're getting out a message that's, that's good. This is, this is something we can rejoice in. Good message and their brothers. It's their motivation that's so ugly. See, they saw Paul's imprisonment as a chance. With him out of the picture, they could gain a little more prestige, a little more power. They could get some more prominence, a few more followers. And so they saw this as opportunity. In verse 17, he says, They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. See, they've taken an opportunity to display God's glory, and they used it to show their own glory. And while they're at it, they're going to kick Paul while he's down. They're going to uh, afflict him in his imprisonment. Many of you know how painful those kinds of attacks are, more painful when they come from a fellow believer, more painful when they come from someone from whom you expected love. And those kinds of attacks test us. They, they test whether we love God's glory more or whether we love our reputation more, whether we love the status and, and this people's acceptance, people's good opinion of us. And it's here, frankly, that we expect the Apostle Paul to tap out. Here you expect, finally, you've probably had enough of this, Paul. Surely at this point, you're going to say, and I've had it. Those people pushed me over the edge. I can't take it. But then he gives that incredible line in verse 18. What then? Uh, The question is, so what are we to make of all of this? What are we going to do with all of these people? And Paul says, this is what we're going to do. This is the evaluation. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I can rejoice in this because God's glory is on display And if that means me getting kicked to the curb, I'm okay with that. I've made it the goal of my life to lift up Christ. And if that means that I get pushed down, I'm okay with that. I rejoice that Christ is put on display. It's always been this way with God's servants. I want you to see how Peter and the apostles responded. Here they were falsely accused falsely arrested, and it says of them in Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I don't know anyone who is joyful about suffering dishonor. We hate suffering dishonor. We hate being falsely accused. We hate personal attacks. But the disciples knew that if they suffered that dishonor for Jesus' sake, 
that if there was a purpose in it, and that purpose was God's glory, they could actually rejoice in that personal attack and that humiliation that they were suffering. They knew that if the suffering was for Jesus' sakes, God would get the glory and the gospel would spread. So where does that put us? I think if we're honest, we've all had opportunities that we have, let's just say we've missed them. We have all had times when the suffering has come and our questions have been more around how could you let this happen, God, than how are you going to use this, God? We've, we've all done that. We've all faced those times when our hearts have been tested, when we have shown by our thoughts and our actions that we, we really, at least at that moment, loved our comfort or our freedom or our reputation more than we loved God's glory. But if we understand anything of what's happening in our world today, I think we have to recognize this is the challenge of our generation. This is the question that will be answered by each of us who names the name of Christ, and we will need to answer this question and answer it decisively. Do you love God's glory more than your very self, more than your life? Or do you really love your comfort and your freedom and your reputation? And you'd be more than happy to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on any, any combination of those things, but that's really where your center is. That's really where your heart is. Ours is becoming the generation where the layers of the Christian church are being peel, peeled back. As the heater's turned up, the layers are peeled back, and the world is seeing what's really on the inside. In some cases, we're seeing the doors of churches close. And those doors of the churches that are closing are showing that the reality had most likely died long ago, and they've been holding on to the veneer. But that veneer will not hold up in our generation. If your faith is truly about Jesus and the glory of God, then as your comfort and your freedom and your reputation are stripped away, God will have an opportunity to display his glory. He will have an opportunity to give an inexplicable witness to the power of God, to God's goodness, his love, and the preciousness of a Savior who brings a peace and a contentment that this world doesn't have an answer to. So let's look to him and cling to him for that, and let's search our hearts for what is truly beneath the layers, beneath the surface of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, I just want to take just a moment for some silent confession and repentance. Admit ways that you've accused God instead of being used by God. Admit ways that the gods of comfort and freedom and reputation 
have taken a place alongside the God of glory that they were never intended to take. Heavenly Father, forgive us for testing you. Forgive us for misrepresenting you. And may your spirit purify our devotion that we might glorify you before a watching world. None of us likes to suffer. But help us to take the opportunities that you give to show the world around us that you're enough that you really are our peace. For we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.